Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 12th of November 2018 and this is episode 89. On today's programme, I talk to historian Dr Sally White about her latest book, Ordinary Heroes, which looks at the role and impact of civilian volunteers during the First World War. Sally, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and civilian volunteers? Yes, I I actually trained as an archaeologist and worked as one for a while before moving into museum work, which I loved because it gave me so many different avenues to explore. And while I was working in Worthing Museum in Sussex, I came across a tiny press cutting that reported that Worthing's adoption of the French town of richbourg lavaray under the British scheme, British League of Help for the Devastated Areas of France had been approved. And I couldn't find anyone who'd ever heard of this organisation or of the adoption. This was in the days before the internet, so research was a bit, a bit more cumbersome. I found out as much as I could, and that 99 British towns had adopted towns in France that had been destroyed during the war to help with restoration and providing things like food and blankets and clothes. And this led me to thinking about the civilians in France and what they had undergone while their land was being fought over backwards and forwards for the duration of the war. I began to think about this more and more and how many of them, civilians in France and in this country, must actually have had post-traumatic stress disorder. And I had a period where life didn't let me do much research. But when I could, I went back to it and began exploring the role of civilian volunteers further and further. And over the last few years, um, researching and writing this book kept me sane while doing a job I absolutely hated. And I could have gone on with the research indefinitely because I kept finding more and more fascinating avenues to explore. But there came a point when I actually had to stop. So if we start at the very beginning, what were the traditions of voluntary service in Edwardian Britain before the war? It was very, very different and much more limited. The the volunteer movement in the First World War changed volunteering in this country forever. It was much more patronage before the war, with the rich helping the poor on occasion, not all that often, it must be said, doing things like paying for beds in hospitals, sitting on committees. There were a lot of upper-class women who would sit on committees for orphanages or for one kind of other organisation to help the less well-off. But it wasn't hands-on. They weren't getting involved in the nitty-gritty of the organisations. My grandmother was in an orphanage for a while just before the First World War and wrote about later wrote about Christmas when all the ladies from the hospital committee turned up to watch the little orphans being given a Christmas present. And the chair chair lady would hand them out. Then as soon as the committee had gone, toys were taken away again. But it was much more benevolence and patronage rather than groups of people working together, giving time and energy and money. And it was also people, there was a change from the rich and the powerful deciding what help was needed to people at a more grassroots level identifying areas where they could make a difference. So when we move to the First World War, what was the nature and extent of civilian volunteerism during the conflict? It was colossal. 
nobody has kept accurate figures, so we can't say how many people were involved, but it was hundreds of thousands. About 100,000, just women, served as VADs, members of the volunteer aid detachments. Um, alone, there were hundreds of war hospital supply depots making requisites, bandages, all sorts of things for the hospitals, and they had thousands of volunteers. Because so many people worked not only for the big organisations, but in tiny groups in communities all over Britain, it's very, very hard to quantify. But they provided things that the government could not, either because it couldn't afford to, or because it hadn't got the resources in place, or the people in place to do it just in terms of inventing and making all sorts of new medical attachments, special boots for people who'd got injured legs or special arm supports for those who'd got injured arms or waterproof baths made of paper mache. These were things that civilians had time to develop, which the authorities who were dealing with a war that was all engulfing and very quickly demanded resources beyond those that were available, couldn't actually provide. So I think from very early on, they provided a sort of backstop position that nobody had realised they even needed, but it was absolutely colossal. And of course, beyond all the practical work, there was fundraising beyond belief. You know, alongside all the large organisations, there were groups in villages just raising money, say, for one serviceman who'd been taken prisoner. Um, So you can't quantify things like that. And tiny idiosyncratic efforts like John Penoyer's sweater fund, where a man who worked in a lawyer's office in London asked all his friends to donate their cricket sweaters so he could dye them khaki and send them off when the army was short of uniforms. And it's very difficult to actually count all these people and put any figure on what was achieved, but it was overwhelming. So what were the main areas of voluntary activity in the UK during the war? You can divide it into, I think, four main areas. One of which, and and the first and most clamant in the early days of the war, was supporting refugees. Because when people look at refugee movements today, they're largely unaware that within the first few months of the First World War, a quarter of a million Belgian refugees arrived in this country and needed to be housed, given medical care, given clothing, fed, looked after some of them for years. And that was something this country had never dealt with before and and did, um, I think, supremely well. They also raised money for and collected clothes for other groups of refugees, the Serbs, for example, and later the Armenians after the genocide in Turkey. So I think refugee support was a very big area and one that absorbed people early on. They also um, focused on supporting men who were in the armed forces overseas, letting them know they hadn't been forgotten, providing clothes, comfort packages, parcels for prisoners of war in Germany, and later those who were transferred to internment in Switzerland, civilians interned in Germany, providing station buffets for the men in transit, that kind of thing. There was focus on medical work in the broadest possible sense, nursing in all the new auxiliary hospitals that were set up, cleaning the hospitals, acting as orderlies, driving patients from the ambulance trains to the hospitals, making medical requisites. They even had competitive bandage rolling between different depots. I love the picture of this. 
collecting eggs, fruit, vegetables, tobacco for people who were sick and wounded in hospitals in this country, entertaining servicemen. So medical in a very broad sense. And there were also the Quakers who worked with alien people who had been interned in this country and their families to help them cope. They worked in the internment camps on the Isle of Man, but also helped families throughout the country and suffered great personal attacks themselves for doing that work. As well as volunteerism within the United Kingdom, large numbers of people actually volunteered overseas. What was the nature of their service and where did they serve? I think most people, when they initially think about the volunteers in the First World War, have a picture of the VADs nursing in, on the Western Front usually in spotless white uniforms, ministering to the sick and wounded. And actually, help overseas was much more complex than that and very large. I think it was characterised by individuals or groups of people who identified a need and then tried to meet it. And the volunteers were incredibly versatile and adaptable. Early on, there were a lot of very uncontrolled groups. Um, people were determined to get over to France and do their bit. And there were a number of aristocratic women who set up hospitals in France, always with themselves as the matron, of course. For these groups, choosing a uniform seems to have been a very important preoccupation to make sure it was elegant enough. The Duchess of Westminster and her friends set up a hospital in Le Touquet. And when a new consignment of wounded men was due to arrive, they dressed in full evening gowns with their diamond tiaras on, and went downstairs with the background of music playing on the gramophone to greet and register the men who were arriving, covered in blood, in great pain, covered in mud, um, and who must have been totally bemused to be faced with these women in their full evening gowns and tiaras. There were quite a few groups, not as eccentric as that, but a number, who set up hospitals very early on. And after a while, the hospitals were taken over by the Red Cross, and things were more coordinated. Several groups went out to the Balkans, um, and I think this gets forgotten. I'd never heard, never realised until I started my research that women did go out and men go out and work in the Balkans as well as on the Western Front. There was no central organisation, and they were, in a number of cases, much more mavericks, people who hadn't got the qualifications to go out and nurse on the Western Front or who were in no way team workers and caused some difficulties out in Serbia. But groups there were sent by the Red Cross, the Scottish Women's Hospital, the Serbian Relief Fund, and the unit that was loosely linked to the Royal Free Hospital in London and led by James Berry, who really had wanted to join the Royal Army Medical Corps, but was rejected because he had a club foot. This did not deter him from going out to Serbia, setting up a hospital there that was admired by lots of people um, and working out there for several years. But the, the people who worked out in the Balkans had a much harder time in a lot of ways than those on the Western Front because they were so isolated. They couldn't go home on leave for a few days. They could go months without getting any letters or any news from home at all. They were sometimes just in tents. They didn't speak the language, so they had a lot of communication problems. They would be in extreme weather conditions, huge heat in summer with dust everywhere blowing through when they were trying to keep things sterile. Um, kitchens where 
they flooded so badly that the cooks had to stand on planks that had been put across bricks to raise them up out of the water that flooded, flowed through the kitchens incessantly. There were also various groups provided by the Quakers who, as most of us are aware, would not fight. They were conscientious objectors. Um, they set up the field ambulance unit for Quakers who were willing to be involved in helping people out there but would not fight out, in, out on the Western Front. The field ambulance unit had to be set up as a VAD unit under the Red Cross so that they had protection from the Geneva Convention. But they carried men across, away from the battlefield, to the dressing stations where they could get basic treatment. So what motivated people to um, join up and volunteer? A range of things. I think, I think there was initially, I think women as much as men got caught up in all the excitement of what was seen as the just war, helping gallant little Belgium, and this belief that the war was going to be over by Christmas. And there was a great scurry of people determined to get involved and to be out there and to do their bit before it was all over. So excitement, not exactly mass hysteria, but being caught up in the general feeling that this was a good thing to be doing. But I think one of the main things as the time went on was desperation to do something that could be seen to be helping their men overseas or by helping other people who were sick and wounded, not particularly their own relatives. They were doing what they hoped somebody else would do for their loved ones in a similar position. And I think that motivated a lot of people. The care for refugees was very much stimulated by this belief that gallant little Belgium had stood firm and was um, to be respected and looking after those refugees was a duty in return for what Belgium was seen to have sacrificed. So what was the social class, gender and general background of the volunteers? I know it's probably a huge question, probably very, very difficult to answer. It was very mixed. Um, as I said, it was men and women, and even VAD units had male members because some of the VAD units were set up before the war and had men there as well. The men who got involved in voluntary work often took leading administrative roles on committees. They were very often the secretaries, the treasurers, and the chairmen. And some had the grace then to admit that the women did an awful lot of the hands-on work, particularly when it came to things like um, looking after the refugees. But men also acted... And they, a lot of them were middle-class men, um, acted as unpaid drivers, transporting the wounded around. Um, many of the women were middle and upper class, largely because they had to be able to support themselves financially if they were going to be long-term volunteers, full-time volunteers. Um, they weren't, you know, they were volunteers. They weren't paid. So if they couldn't provide their own living expenses, pay for their own uniforms, their own transport to wherever they were going. They couldn't become full-time volunteers. We also had in this country a large pool of able, energetic and willing men, sorry, willing women, who couldn't wait to get involved in doing something practical. So there were a lot of these upper-class and middle-class women available. But working-class women did also get involved. They were also determined to help where they could. Life was harder for them often having full-time jobs, being single parent because the man was away fighting and living on a reduced income. 
but some of the mill girls in the north of England arranged their shifts so that some of them could go and clean in the nearby hospital before starting their shift in the mill, and others could go and help in the kitchens after work. They must have been exhausted. So tell me about some of the individuals who volunteered that, that comes out, that, who, do, who sort of stand out in your research. One of my favourites is Lady Dorothy Fielding. And she was one of nine children of the Earl of Denby. She'd been a debutante. She was, in, she was 24 at the start of the war, a young lady. Um, but she immediately knew she wanted to get involved in helping, did a home nursing course. This did not qualify her to serve in France, so her mother asked the War Office for advice as to how she could get out to France. And Dorothy was then one of four women who joined Hector Munro's Ambulance Corps in Belgium, working as an ambulance driver. And we know a lot about Lady Dorothy because the family were prolific letter writers. And her letters back to her parents have been preserved in the Warwickshire Record Office. A lot of the accounts we have of the, of the war were edited by the writers afterwards. So people's diaries or letters were edited by them and published. Lady Dorothy's weren't. They were left as they were and have now been published. And they are much more honest. They show how she changed from being eager, slightly gung-ho um, and excited by it all to stressed, absolutely exhausted. She admitted in her letters that she got very jumpy and depressed at times and desperately needed her brief bits of leave. She was honest in saying she actually felt that being overseas was much easier than being at home would have been and was glad to be doing something constructive. She drove ambulances to pick up the wounded from a little way back from the front line to take them to hospital. She often, often drove much closer to the front than she was actually allowed to by the regulations. And on one occasion, her Belgian driver was too scared to go any further, so she dumped him at the roadside, drove up the ambulance further, picked up the wounded, and then went back for her driver. And many people felt that she soon led the unit because Hector Munro was not good at management. She had huge sympathy and respect for the Belgians. Coming from the ruling classes of Britain, had a lot of contacts that were actually useful to her, so she could beg and borrow things from various people um, that helped. And one of her contacts was actually the Queen's brother, Prince Alexander of Tech, who used to let her go and have a bath every now and then at his headquarters. They lived in awful condition. They were always short of money, so she kept writing to her poor mother, asking if she could have a bit more money or they could, if her mother could go and buy lists of things. She was decorated by the Belgians for bravery and was, in 1916, in the first group of British women to be awarded the military medal. Her citation said, among other things, that she was frequently exposed to risks which probably no other woman has undergone and has always displayed a devotion to duty and contempt of danger, which has been a source of admiration to everyone. So how did the government respond to this explosion in voluntary activity during the war? I think with panic to start with, an absolute horror, because people were volunteering in such huge numbers that there was no administration in place to deal with them. And you had the mavericks like the Duchess of Westminster who were just determined to go over to France and do their thing, and no official was going to get in their way. The authorities also had the um, Charmy Medical Corps, who were absolutely determined that women doctors were not going to get involved, and women nurses were not going to nurse, volunteers were not going to nurse in military hospitals, thank you very much. And I think, initially, 
they really wanted to try and control all these strong-willed women who were determined to go out and nurse the heroes in France and Belgium. I suspect that the authorities could see ahead and realise the problems there would be when some of them were taken prisoner by the Germans. In, with some groups, I think the Germans wished to goodness they hadn't taken them prisoner because the women were so stroppy um, that they were then sent back to Britain. And one group was sent off, taken to Denmark and sort of dumped on the border there. I think the British authorities must have thought, you know, they really didn't want to have to cope with all that and sorting out that kind of mess. But they gradually had to realise that although they believed the war was no place for women to go, they gradually realised they couldn't do without them as long as they were regulated. They were very, very slow to accept women doctors, but they increasingly accepted that help that women could provide was essential. In 1915, the government realised that they really had got to regulate some of the work that was going into sending comforts, knitting parcels and things out to men, because there was an awful lot of duplication lack of economy in purchasing, lack of sense there, and also the standards of what was being made were very variable. So they set up the Director-General of Voluntary Organisations, Sir Edward Ward, to coordinate the efforts and make sure the goods were sent where they were needed. He would find out what a particular regiment or area needed and then get depots to make those particular goods that could be sent out. They did centralised buying, which reduced a lot of wastage, and issued all sorts of knitting patterns so that people knitted what was wanted in the right wool and in the right sizes. And at the end of the war, Sir Edward Ward was fulsome in his praise for what the volunteers achieved. The number of charities being set up was incredible and increasing all the time. So in 1916, the government responded by setting up the War Charities Act to ensure that charities were registered, had proper committees, and kept proper accounts. And that achieved a great deal. However, the people of Bexhill didn't like this. The people of Bexhill had taken in some Belgian refugees, um, which they housed somewhere where, as they said in their own annual report, you wouldn't have known they were there unless you had had prior knowledge. They kept them very quiet. But when regulation came in, they sent all their refugees away, supposedly in the interests of the refugees, because according to the annual report, the refugees in Bexhill would have found it embarrassing to come under scrutiny from the Director General of Voluntary Organisations. In reality, he would have simply wanted the committee to show it had managed the money it had responsibly. And I felt very sorry for those refugees being sent off to London and dispatched to some other part of the country after they had settled in in Bexhill. At the end of the war, the commander-in-chief, Sir Douglas Haig, said that it was impossible to praise the volunteers too highly or to overestimate their achievements, which shows how much officialdom came to value them. But I think it's worth remembering that the Quakers, who helped alien internees and their families, that they could have been accused of helping the enemy under the Treason Act of 1351, but the Home Office supported them tacitly, if not openly, from the outset and valued what they did. What was the public response to voluntary activity um, between 1914 and 1918? Some of it was competitive, which amused me. Um, villages vied with each other to see who could raise the most. 
there'd be newspaper reports saying, you know, little snodding last week held up bazaar and raised this much. You know, surely we can do better in greater snodding. And there was also detailed reporting of donations and fundraising so that people could be seen to have done their bit and to have contributed um, with their time and with their money. There was a huge desire, I think, to get involved. And people gave not only money, but they gave goods and gave time. And when they wanted a personal involvement, so, for example, some people who collected eggs for the sick or wounded wrote individual messages on the eggs so that the person who ate them could see that somebody was caring about them. People tucked letters into the things they knitted. It's worth looking at how much the money raised was. We don't know an overall figure. But if we look at just what the Red Cross raised, in four years, they raised nearly £22 million, which equates to £1.2 billion today. That is roughly twice what Comic Relief, Sports Relief and Children in Need raised between them over a four-year period with all the modern fundraising methods and a much larger population, which you know, illustrates great big letters, really, how much it mattered to the public and how much the public got involved. And finally, Sally, where can people get your book from? They can get it direct from the publishers, Amberley Publishing, and their website is www.amberley-books.com. They can get it. It's available, I should say, either as a hardback or an e-book, and it's available from Amazon, Waterstone's website. Sally, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>